Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsudliff.com. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and in this episode, we will be discussing everything you need to know about actually domestic violence today. So I am lucky enough to have on my one of my bestest friends in the whole world, Shanaz Khan, who is an attorney at law in San Jose, California. And uh, I'm so excited that you're here with us today, Shanaz, and you'll be giving our viewers some tips on what to look out for in terms of domestic violence. Um, it's a topic that is definitely not discussed very often at all, and uh, even less common, I think, in our communities. Um, and I, I don't know if it's just something that you know we don't want to discuss or something that we just try to ignore. But either way, it's a very, very important topic. And I'm so grateful that you're here. And, you know, you can kind of explain to our viewers what it looks like and in the different types of scenarios. But first, if you could just let our viewers, I know your awesomeness, but if you could just let our viewers know uh, a little bit about yourself, your background and, uh, and what you do. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And somewhat, thank you so much for having me, Salif. I, you know, love your podcast. And I'm so glad to be able to be here and honored that, you know, you asked me so, um, and definitely to talk about a subject that's, um, you know, very important and um, important to me in terms of the type of work I do. So I am a family law attorney in uh, California, licensed to practice in California and in Michigan. I graduated a long time ago, probably over 20 years ago, from University of Michigan Law School. Um, I've been practicing for probably about 16 or 17 years, took a lot of time off to be with my kids. Um, I am a 40-hour trained domestic violence counselor, um, which means I've gone through the uh, 40-hour trainings uh, to be able to work with domestic violence victims. I have worked with local agencies here to represent victims of domestic violence in court hearings. Um, I've done crisis lines at local domestic violence agencies, um, taking those phone calls, uh, people calling in, asking for seeking help. And I currently work at the local court here in a neutral fashion. So I'm not doing representation, but I do work for the court in a neutral manner. But I should clarify, I'm not here on behalf of the court. I am here as just a a private attorney. So one of the uh, services that our court has here in Santa Clara County in California is a restraining order help center. And it's one of the um, offices that that I assist at where uh, we have people who coming in regarding questions about any kind of emergency, domestic violence, um, civil harassment, uh, whether they're the perpetrator, whether they're the victim, coming in asking for legal assistance. Um, we don't represent them, but we do provide paperwork, answer questions, kind of give some guidance, things like that. That's great. Thanks. So so actually, I'd, I'd like to just get into the topic, if you don't sure. mind. So um, if you could just, uh, you know, kind of just go over like basically like the definition, maybe like the cycle of violence and the different forms of abuse. Sure, sure. And so with domestic violence, um, 
kind of one of the biggest misperceptions. And I, so I, I, let me start off with this is that domestic violence can, is not gender specific. It's not something that happens only to women by men or only, you know, men can be victims of domestic violence. People in same sex relationships can have domestic violence in those relationships as well. Uh, domestic violence can occur between a parent and child, um, uh, a parent and, um, uh, uh, you know, between children to their parents, elder abuse, things like that. So there's all different types of uh, forms of domestic violence. Uh, I'm going to speak primarily in referencing uh, women when I speak of victims, and it's not to discount um, the experience of male victims, but rather it it's it is what's reported is far more significantly occurrences that happen to women than to men. But again, men. Um, are victims of domestic violence as well. Domestic violence is not gender specific, um, is domestic violence. So it's, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's, it's the punch in the face. It's the slam up against the wall, things like that, that those physical acts. Domestic violence is essentially a, a power and control issue. Um, it's, it can take forms of uh, physical violence, but it's not the only way that domestic violence is exhibited. So. Um, there are relationships where both parties are physically attacking each other and going at each other and throwing things and verbally abusing each other. And, you know, a lot of times um, those are just dysfunctional relationships. Those are relationships where either party should probably be involved with one another and it's just not going anywhere good anytime soon. So um, those, you know, the, the issue here is to distinguish between something like that versus um, a power and control situation. And that's really where um, someone is using power and control power to control somebody else. Um, and that power can be physical power. It can be uh, financial power. It can be emotional power. It can be um, verbal power, things like that. Anything that you're using to manipulate, to control another person. Um, and so, like I said, a lot of times, um, majority of times, is this is happening between in a in a male female relationship between where the male is a perpetrator, female is a victim. However, it is not exclusive in any sense to um, to to uh, women as victims. Uh, men have experienced this as well. And so, as I mentioned, there's different types. I mean, it can manifest in really in different ways. Um, so, again, the obvious ones are physical abuse, um, you know, hitting, uh, punching, slapping, um, choking, things like that. Um, there are, there's also emotional abuse, a lot of manipulation, um, you know, the gaslighting, the, not, not that all gaslighting is a domestic violence incident, but it, it kind of raises flags, red flags, like, oh, hmm, this is, this doesn't look like a healthy thing that's happening in this relationship. So maybe it could be a gateway to something else. Um, Verbal abuse, you know, a lot of demeaning comments, putting somebody down, embarrassing them in front of other people, um, things like that. A lot of psychological abuse, uh, again, the gaslighting, things like that, um, you know, that that kind of, it's not me, it's you, you know, why did you do these things? If you were just acting in a certain way, I wouldn't get so angry, things like that. Um, some of the more concerning uh, aspects of domestic violence can be things like stalking and harassment. And from a legal perspective, they are more difficult to prove because they have an intention behind them. So if somebody comes in and has a black eye, there's some obvious physical evidence that, you know, somebody has been harmed or hurt 
in a situation. But if somebody's being harassed um, or stalked, how do you show that that is actually happening? One, it's not just in this person's mind, oh, they're being paranoid. And two, how do you know that the action is in, not an innocent action? Hey, I'm just driving by your house. I have to go to the store and I have to pass your house. But rather they're passing in front of your house 20 times a day, you know, or they're sending their friends to pass in front of your house 20 times a day, stuff like that. So stalking and harassment um, are definitely concerning. In California, we've now also included a term called disturbing the peace. So some so actions that are not categorized in these very specific boxes of physical violence or, you know, they did this, they did that, but rather a general sense of I'm just there to kind of disrupt you and uh, uh, harass you to the point that you do what I need you to do. I'm going to use this disturbing your peace um, element. So yeah, it can manifest in, in many ways, but the essence of it is a power and control really in the relationship. It's not a it's not an equal relationship, and it's not a relationship where, um, you know, some of the terms that you'll hear probably this is, might be easier. Some of the terms that you'll hear from people who are experiencing domestic violence is, I always feel like I'm walking on eggshells. Um, I, I I try to do this right. But it's, it, you know, they get really angry again. So I, I try to do it better this way. You know, like nothing I do is good enough. You know, I'll, I'll do it the way they told me to do it this time, but it still made them really angry. Um, that kind of sense of taking on that responsibility. If I just fix this one thing, they will behave in a better way. Like you're responsible for their reaction, for their behavior. So sometimes when you start hearing those kind of terms from somebody, um, again, as a as an, a domestic violence advocate or, or a counselor who works with people, those are the things that start raising some red flags. Like, hmm, you know, why do you feel like you have to be careful? You know, obviously you should be considerate of other people. Um, you know, again, all this in the context of a normal relationship has, you know, certain actions that, you know, are, of course, you should always be considerate of another person. But in a domestic violence relationship, these are taken to the extreme. Mm. So. So interesting. So I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering if actually, if you can also speak about the difference between like the, say like the legal, the general and um, say like the Islamic definitions. Sure. Sure. So sometimes what happens um, is somebody might be experiencing domestic violence and it is a domestic violence relationship or an incident, things like that as defined maybe by your therapist or by your doctor or somebody that you're encountering a domestic violence agency. But then you go to file a restraining order or take action in, it in a legal sense and wait a minute, you don't have enough information or what you're describing, the court might say, doesn't rise to the level of getting protection or you go to the police and they're like, no, mm, we can't do anything about that. Um, and in that sense, it's not that you're not experiencing domestic violence or that these aren't incidences of domestic violence, but rather what has been codified or what is um, what actions can be taken in a legal sense are not necessarily caught up with what is the actual definition of a, a domestic violence incident. And so sometimes people experience some discrepancy in that. So they, they will be told, yes, you're kind of in a... a a domestic violence relationship or something like that, but they try to do something about it or they call the police and the police might be saying, well, you know, we can't really do anything with this. We can't arrest them for that or that. 
And then it's, it sends a lot of confusion. People feel a little bit hopeless, like, well, if I can't do anything about it. And it's not necessarily that. It's, it's really that um, at those moments, it might be better to talk to a private attorney to get or an aid, domestic violence agency to see how best to put it in legal terms or what the court is looking for so you can present your case in that, in that best way. And for most restraining orders, and that would be the legal ramification of if, if you one of the legal ramifications, if you're going to call the police or ask for domestic violence restraining order, uh, ask for help regarding domestic violence incidences, is you can ask for a restraining order. And, you know, essentially what the court is looking for is to see, it, are, you, is there fe- are you fearful for your safety? And if, if you can, if you are fearful for your safety, then how do you express that? How do you put that out there to explain, here's why I'm so scared, you know? I'm scared he's going to take the kids. I'm scared he's going to, um, you know, uh, send me back home, uh, you know, to my family. I'm scared that he's not going to let me, um, you know, uh, go out in the evening, things like that. Not as, I mean, those might be descriptions of incidences of, of, of domestic violence acts, but are you scared for your safety? And if you are, why? Why are you scared? And, and being able to describe that in the legal sense, uh, you know, that will push you into that legal realm. Um, but it doesn't mean that what you're experiencing is not domestic violence. As far as Islamically, there's not really a Islamic domestic violence term. You know, that's definitely a modern term. And, you know, there's always this issue of being able to take these modern concepts and terms and, and immediately apply it to Islam and say, well, what does Islam say about domestic violence. Well, there's no domestic violence term in Islam. Um, but there are general ideas about caring for other people, about how a, a relationship should happen, what kind of love and care should happen within a relationship and acceptable acts between husbands and wives or in relationships between children and parents and between adults and their parents, things like that. So I think as Muslims, we should probably look at those hadith and those Quranic ayahs um, as descriptions of of how those relationships, you know, in a positive light, should be seen. You know, rather than um, looking specifically for a term of domestic violence. Do you think that it's because? Um, I mean, I'm sure it. You know, maybe it. I'm sure it probably happened at that time as well, say like 1400 years ago when Islam came about. But um, I wonder what, why, you know, like I wonder why, um, or maybe, maybe they had a different term or, it, you know, maybe it wasn't a problem or maybe there was a respect for women that came about once Islam came, you know, because it's interesting that, you know, a, a lot of people don't know that much about Islam and don't realize that Islam actually gives women a lot of rights, right? And a lot of protections. And I'm just interested in finding out that maybe at that time, or maybe this wasn't such an issue because women, because once Islam came about, women's, you know, status, because we know that with the pagan Arabs, you know, women were seen more as property and, um, you know, as such. And so once Islam came about, they were kind of seen as their own person and they were able to, you know, um, work and have their own business. There were business women and, you know, they're very sophisticated women and Islam gave women a lot of rights. I just wonder, um, you know, why, why there isn't such a term, you know, 
I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, and I suppose I should have done this earlier, but, but preface this by saying I am in no way an Islamic scholar. So, I mean, for, oh, for a proper, yeah, for a proper discussion, uh, you know, what Islam, you know, says on specifically, you know, what the rights of women are in this relationship, um, uh, in in marriage in relationships, I think you know definitely you should look to the scholars. You should you should talk to your imam, things like that. Um, but as far as you know, as a family law attorney, people do come and ask, and especially Muslim women wanting to know, well, what does Islam say? People don't want to, you know, their Islam is very important to them. They want to make sure what they're doing is is okay. I think what what comes about. And I don't think that it's that it's not there or it went away. Um, I think that it's the potential for it to be, um, I, I'm trying to think. I think when Islam came and provided rights for women in relationship and said to families, to men, to women, here are the obligations you have to your family, to your spouse, to your children, to your parents. Here is what Allah subhanahu wa is, the goal Allah subhanahu wa is getting to is a peaceful home, a home where a husband and wife are garments for one another, um, where there is a head of a household, right? So in that sense, you know, uh, it, it is a little different than the traditional, you know, Western view of a, of a, of a marriage. But it doesn't mean that those, that gives one person in the relationship the ability to take advantage of that position. Right. Um, and I think the elephant in the room when it comes to talking about domestic violence and Islam is the ayat in the Quran that talks about, um, uh, you know, that beat them lightly, uh, the permission that comes. So that if there's a disagreement between men and women, between husband and wife, that they are to, uh, that there's various ways in which they can, um, look for uh, resolving those issues. But one of them, you know, first, you know, separate yourselves from them, et cetera. And then finally to beat that you may beat them lightly um, was always a controversial ayah and how to interpret it and what does it mean and why is it there and does it advocate, does it allow for violence in the home, things like that. Um, and I think most scholars that you will find today will say that, you know, no, it's not a, a blank check for yes, go out and, and harm your spouse or use fear and anger to resolve your conflict. Um, there's far more ayahs and hadith and the actions of the prophet, sunnah of the prophet that show compassion and kindness and peace in the home. And, and I keep going back to the item of peace in the home because if you can't be yourself, if you can't have a conversation with your spouse, if you are constantly walking on eggshells, that's not a peaceful home <clears throat> for you or for your children. And I think as Muslims, as Muslim women, men and women, I think we need to remember um, that the point of having stable families is to have a peaceful home for, for comfort, for your spouse, for your children. Um, it's a place of comfort. And if you can't point to your household and say that, then maybe something's not quite right and that you should start looking a little deeper into some of those issues. So I would say I can't get too much into that issue. 
about, you know, the chronic Aya or the, you know, whys or, you know, the history of it. But I think we just should be aware that it's there. Um, I think it's, it is an ayat that affects a lot of relationships, Muslim relationships, uh, good and bad. Um, and I think if there's a, additional issues or questions with it, that it's probably best to seek guidance from a scholar on that, on that, looking specifically into that issue. But as far as the practical application, you know, whether it's in the Quran or not, acts of violence have effects on people and they have effects on families. And that's kind of what our job is uh, here is to address the practical application of, of how um, domestic violence affects families. How do we keep families safe? How do we stop extreme behavior from happening? Um, and how do we teach people to have healthier relationships? Absolutely. So. So, you know, I'm glad you, you went over all of that and uh, definitely, you know, the Aya, which, which of course, in my podcast, I always preface with, you know, if there's any questions about your religion to definitely seek out the advice of a religious scholar. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And absolutely, this podcast definitely does not give out any fatwas at all by any means. It's, it's merely a discussion. So it's very important if people have any questions at all to feel free to, you know, ask your imam and uh, do your own due diligence and research. So um, I do want to know a little bit about, you know, when we talk about domestic violence and we talk about the victim, oftentimes people are like, well, you know, why can't they just get up and leave? Or, you know, they think that it may never happen to them or, and, or, you know, they may even say, well, you know, maybe she deserved it. Or did you see the way she was acting? You know, maybe, maybe that's why, you know, X, Y, and Z happened. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Right, right. So, you know, part of the issue with domestic violence is there's a whole psychology of it. There's a whole psychology of the, of the domestic violence victim. Um, and when, you encounter somebody who's experiencing domestic violence, or if you are somebody who's going through domestic violence, it is really important that you get involved with people who are, have experience working with such victims. That's why with domestic violence agencies, you can't just walk in the door and say, I want to volunteer. I want to help out. You have to go through a training. You have to go through a 40 hour training to be able to interact with domestic violence victims because there is um, a whole psychology behind it. There are um, aspects to domestic violence and to what the victims have been through that does affect how they interact, how they, res how they respond to things. Um, so yeah, why can't they just leave? Um, well, because that's part of the domestic violence. Part of what the perpetrator is doing is creating a worldview for their victim very, very subtly over time um, it might be reinforced on an, on an unwittingly by other ex external in, uh, experiences that I'm your whole world. I'm everything. If you leave, who's going to help you? Who's going to pay your bills? You think your family's going to take you back? What's the community going to say? Who's going to believe you? You know, a lot of times in those relationships, um, isolation is one of the, um, one of the uh, uh, 
elements that you look for when somebody's talking to you about domestic violence or when they're describing their situation. If you hear that they're becoming very isolated, they're not talking to their friends, um, they're not in communication with the family as much anymore. They're not going out. Maybe somebody used to go out all the time and now they're not, or they're only going out with the perpetrator, with their spouse all the time. I can only go to the grocery store with them. Um, I have to check in all the time. Their spouse is constantly calling them while they're out. Again, these individual incidences alone don't say, oh, I'm in a domestic violence relationship. If your husband's calling you and you're out for dinner, it doesn't mean, oh my God, he's so controlling. But if he's calling five or six times during the dinner and uh, this is the first time you've gone out in a long time or something, and there's not a reason really behind it, um, then it just raises again those red flags. So isolation becomes one of the elements uh, or that, uh, uh, you know, kind of abuses that happens to a victim. Um, financial control, uh, where they're only given a little bit of money. Um, they're made to feel like they don't have access to anything. They have to run everything through the spouse. Now, again, a lot of regular you know, healthy relationships have where you're in a financial relationship with somebody. So of course you're going to run the finances by, you're not going to go buy a brand new car without telling your spouse, you know, got to make sure you got money to pay for stuff. That's different. This is, here's the amount of money that you have. What did you do with it? What's going on? Um, account for me, every single thing you're doing, extreme behavior in regards to that, where somebody feels like they don't have the ability to go out and buy a bus ticket. Um, they don't have anybody that they can talk to about things. Um, we, you know, have heard incidences where people sometimes will get other friends or family member to check in on this person, their spouse for them. So it's not just the perpetrator calling them during the day, but other family members, what are you doing? Where are you going? Who are you going with? Uh, things like that. So it's this feeling of being watched. A lot of times you'll hear domestic violence victims, sometimes coming off sounding a little bit paranoid. So when you're talking to them, you're like, oh, I don't think anybody's following you. But that those are all the things that the perpetrators made them. That's the worldview they've created for them, that I'm everything that you have. If you leave me, what's going to happen to you? You know, so they create that extremely dependent person. Um, so statistically, it takes up to seven, seven attempts before somebody will actually leave a relationship. And, you know, we've, we've seen this even amongst some of the most famous superstars, you know, one of the most recent famous examples was of Rihanna and Chris Brown, right? You know, she had, you know, she'd been punched in the face and had physical harm and trauma to her. And she went back, you know, for a little while. She left eventually, but she went back initially. Um, so, you know, it can understanding the victim is really important and understanding that it is a psychology. It is something that's been created by the perpetrator to help them to make the victim feel completely helpless. Um, and, you know, there's different, definitely other barriers to leaving. It's not just, I'm going to pick up and go, but where am I going to, where am I going to go? I have kids, I have children with this person, you know, um, I, he won't let me take the children. What am I going to do with my kid? Where can I go with my two kids, with my three kids? You know, um, how am I going to pay for anything? Uh, you know, I don't have a bank account. I don't have a credit card. Um, I don't know anybody here. You know, um, I don't speak the language. Uh, I know a little bit of English. 
um, but I don't know enough English to communicate everything that's going on for me, you know. And then as far as community goes in the Muslim community, it's, you know, it's the social status, right? The So much of our community puts so much emphasis on social status, you know, uh, going out there and having to seek help um, is going to mean that I'm not going to be able to interact in certain groups. And this is, again, just the reality. Whether it's right or wrong is not the question here, but this is a reality that victims are facing. And so a lot of times, given some of those choices, they choose to stay or they don't know any other route um, sometimes. And then one last thing, just um, before, the other thing to understand about a, a victim of domestic violence is a lot of times they're not looking to leave. They just want the perpetrator to stop doing what they're doing. They like them. They love them. They uh, want to be with them. They just, just don't do that. Don't, don't, you know, come after me. Don't hurt me. Don't, don't control me. So a lot of times it's that, Hey, but if they would just stop doing X, Y, Z, I feel like everything would be okay. And so they keep waiting for that moment. And I know we kind of went over this, you had mentioned it earlier and I don't think I went over it was the cycle of violence. And I, I, if it's okay, can I bring that up now? So, um, of course. Yeah. So, and, um, I think you, you can get these online. You can, if you just type up domestic violence, cycle of violence. So a cycle of violence essentially is, um, it's, it's, it's a wheel and it's, uh, essentially it's, it's what happens in a domestic violence relationship in that there's, there's a period of time where there's tension building. So, um, things are, you know, there's, there's tension building in the house. Things are getting stressful. Um, people are getting, you know, the, the abusers may be getting a little nitpicky or little, little bursts of, you know, complaints or, you know, um, moodiness or whatever tensions building. You can tell, Oh, this person's not in a good mood or, Oh boy, I better just stay out of their way or something. Um, and then boom, something happens and there's an explosion. There's an incident. There's, um, an action or something happens. And then there's what's called the honeymoon period. And the honeymoon period is, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. I should never have gotten so angry. Here's the flowers. I love you so much. Let's go on a trip. Uh, anything to make up for whatever has, has been done. Being intimate, um, using, you know, a physical relationship to say, oh my gosh, you know, I can't live without you. I can't believe I did that. And uh, and all that stuff, whatever needs to be said, please forgive me, please forgive me. And then you go back into, you know, time goes on and then, oh, another incident. Oh, the tension's building. I can feel it again. And oh my gosh, you know, they're in a bad mood again. And I better not say this. I better just avoid this. Oh, kids, come on over here. Just stay away and let's just do it like this and make, make, make him happy or her happy, you know? And then boom, there's an explosion. Something happens, triggers it. There's, you know, an incident, physical incident, uh, yelling incident, whatever, something happened. And then, oh my gosh, the honeymoon period again. Oh my God, I can't believe it happened again. I swear to God, it won't happen again, again, you know, with the flowers. So the honeymoon phase. So this is the, the cycle. And what happens over time is that the tension building gets longer or, you know, shorter, uh, meaning you're, con- you're living more in this, this tension part of the circle. Um, and the honeymoon phase starts to get shorter and shorter. So the time between incident and tension starts to go almost 
cyclical. Um, so the honeymoon phase starts to get shorter and shorter until it's gone, until it's just tension and explosion, tension and explosion. And so that's essentially, you know, the progression of a, of a cycle of violence. Um, and so why do people stay? Because maybe that honeymoon period, things are really great and they're a really great person. And if they, if they could just be this person, everything would be all right. So they're willing to put up with the other stuff if I can get to that. But what happens in a, in a domestic violence relationship, and it, it's hard for the victim to see this, is eventually, over time, if, it, if things are not addressed, that honeymoon phase is going to get shorter and shorter. Those explosions are going to get worse and worse. And that tension is going to eventually be the predominant time you're spending in the relationship. So, and so what we have to do as a community, be careful of is the victim blaming. You know, yeah, well, absolutely, you know, absolutely. And and unfortunately, well, sometimes it comes from our own family. Oh, beta, just you know, just do this, and everything will be okay. Just do that. Don't don't make them ha- uh, like this. Don't get them like that. Or you know, they're ain't, you know they're tired when they come home from work or something of that nature. And again, in normal healthy relationship, yes, be considerate. You know, take care of your spouse. Your spouse takes care of you. But in a domestic violence relationship where there's power and control. Um, there's this false pressure or sense that somehow as the victim, I have control over their reaction and their abuse on me. That if I just do X, they will stop hurting me, hitting me, controlling me. You know, if I just do it perfectly, if I just do it right, but you don't have control over another person's emotions. They have control of their emotions. You don't have control over their reactions. They have control over their reactions. So we have to be careful not to blame the victim for the reactions of somebody else. You know, they can control themselves. Absolutely. They can't control how somebody else is going to react to them. Absolutely. I see that, you know, and I, I definitely, you know, recognize that, that in our communities that there is oftentimes, you know, uh, blaming of the victim the, Oh, well, did you see how she is? Oh, well, she's so loud, you know, or maybe that, you know, who knows, maybe she did something that made him mad or something like that. Right. Instead of actually blaming the, the perpetrator who's causing all this harm to the family, right. In the family environment. Right. And even as part of that victim blaming is if you do anything about it, you're the one as the victim breaking up the family. Oh, why are you, right. you know, you're breaking up the family. Why are you leaving? Why are you taking the kids away? Why are you, you don't, you know, he see, he's such a great person. And again, I say, I don't mean to be specific in the genders in my conversation to discount the experience of male victims. I have seen, I have actually represented men, male victims. So they are there and um, they should also be given a voice um, simply for conversational sake, using the gender specific of she versus he. Um, but sure. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, it's the, the blaming also of breaking up the family, you know, Oh, there's that somehow the victim has control over, you know, whether they are breaking up a family or not. What we have to understand is the minute somebody creates a violent home, they've broken up the family already. It's in, that is the action that's breaking up the family. That does not, that is not in line with the Sunnah, the prophet. That is not in line with Allah SWT's, um, 
uh, you know, uh, want for family, that there be peace, that there be comfort, that it be a place where you go and feel comfortable, right? So when there's violence in the home and there's yelling, there's screaming and there's hitting and there's control, um, that's not a peaceful place. So the breakup of the family happened already. What the victim is doing is keeping the family safe, keeping themselves safe. And as a victim, one of the things I think um, you need to realize, and I suppose I, you know, I don't know who's listening, who needs to hear this, is if you have children especially, but the most important thing is that you stay safe. That whatever happens, that you get the help and you stay safe. Um, everything else will fall into place and, and, and be okay. But if you're not in a safe situation, you need to stay safe. Um, if you have children for at least the sake of your children, you should definitely do it for yourself. But if you can't bring yourself to do it for yourself and at least for the sake of your children, they need, they need their parent. They need their mom. They need their dad. Um, they need their parent alive and safe. I'm going to just um, take a pause right here because I want us to continue uh, in the next episode of this podcast. So stay tuned. So we are done here and it's been real and really intimate and listen to the second episode of domestic violence continued with um, Shanaz Khan. And uh, that will be the next episode. But remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical and actually in this episode, legal advice. Um, so if you are having any issues with uh, domestic violence or you're worried about your safety, please contact your um, you know, legal advocates and or police so that they may help you and to help you find a situation where you find yourself to be safe and free from harm. Until next time, this is a Muslim sex podcast. So make sure that you listen to the next episode because we will be continuing this conversation with Shanaz Khan and uh, discussing a little bit more on, on victim blaming and the effect on victims long and short term. So thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one -on -one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsadaf.com. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast.